Good to see you all today. Thanks for being here. We are nearing the end of this five-week series that we have entitled The Beauty of Sabbath, during which over the past several weeks we have explored the beauty of the gift of rest. We're taking the next step in that conversation today. Next week we will wrap this series up and then the following week, as Austin mentioned, we will begin the season of Advent. But for today, we simply take the next step in this conversation regarding Sabbath rest. And I'd like to begin with a question, taking a poll of sorts. How many of us like to feel needed? Do you like to feel needed? Okay, about four people over here. So it wasn't nearly as high of a percentage as I was anticipating. But, yeah, and I'm not talking about in sort of a, the sense of unhealthy dependence, but in general, to be needed feels pretty good. I think this is one reason that seeing your phone light up with a text message or a phone call gives you that emotional high momentarily. Somebody needs me. I'm important to somebody, at least in this moment. You know, there was a day when I would turn my cell phone off at night while I slept, now that seems so unreasonable and irresponsible. What if there's an emergency? What, what if somebody needs me? And I get it that we don't have landlines anymore. Well, most of us don't. I, I guess I won't speak for all of us, but we don't. Jane may still have a landline, so... Many of us don't have landlines anymore, so if there is a legitimate emergency, then the cell phone is the only means of contact. But for me, I think 99.9% .9 of the time, and I only subtract that tenth of a percent so that you don't think this is hyperbole, but 99% of the time that my sleep is interrupted by my cell phone buzzing, it actually just happened last night. I was just entering into that stage of deep sleep and bzz, bzz, and then I can't go to sleep. And almost always when that happens, it's not an emergency. In instead, it's a pointless comment that is being made in a text group that I'm a part of. And I'm not pointing any fingers. <laughs> but a, a pointless comment that is made by somebody who can't sleep that night. And while it feels really good to be needed, because it makes us feel like we're important or like our life matters in that moment, one thing that I am personally trying to come to terms with is the fact that not every need in this world is my responsibility to fix. And I don't think that's a cop-out, at least I hope it's not. I actually think it's an obvious fact because of my own limitations, my personal finitude as a human being, but I think it can be tempting for us even with genuinely noble intentions, it can be tempting to sort of take the weight of the world on our shoulders and function as though we have to be the answer for everything, and it's not possible. It's unsustainable, and I think it will lead to burnout, and one of the things I want to submit this morning as we think about that in light of this gift of Sabbath rest, one of the things I want to submit is that Sabbath rest may help us find a place of balance by teaching us that we do in fact have a responsibility to the other. And I don't think that responsibility can be pushed to the side when we consider the importance and significance of Sabbath rest. But at the same time, 
I think Sabbath also teaches us that we don't have the capacity to fix everything, to fix it right now. It's great that we like to serve others. It really is. It's important and admirable that we like to be of assistance and help in whatever way we can, and I'm especially looking at you, Enneagram 2s. But I think sometimes our desire to do something really good, like serve others, sometimes I think that can prevent us from resting adequately, which then prevents sustainable long-term service. So does that make sense, the point I'm trying to make there? A, A desire to serve can, in the end, inhibit prolonged service. There's an interesting story that's told in Matthew chapter 8, and this is not the the text that we're going to camp out in this morning, but I want to begin there. This is in the middle of a chapter where Jesus is doing all of these incredible, miraculous things to help others who have legitimate needs. We, We also see him teach quite a bit in this passage. He talks about the cost of following him. He says, if you're going to follow me, it is going to require great sacrifice of you. But we also see him performing all of these miraculous things for those who have legitimate needs. But then we come to this story in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Now I would imagine that the disciples who are terrified in this moment that they are going to die in the storm, I would imagine that they're a bit frustrated with Jesus. How in the world can you be asleep? We've seen you recently doing all of these miraculous things for others with needs. You've cleansed the lepers. You've healed those who are possessed by demons. You've healed many other physical illnesses Why in the world aren't you helping us out now in our moment of need? We are about to die and you're tucked away snoozing. Maybe you've experienced something like this, where there's somebody who has the capacity to help you out. Maybe they've even offered to lend a hand. And then when you actually have a moment of need, they're nowhere to be found. Have you ever experienced that? Or maybe you've been guilty of that. I I probably have been guilty of that as well. And I would imagine that some of these thoughts are going through the minds of the disciples. Jesus, I really need your help right now, but you are fast asleep. Continue reading in verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, I bring this story up. Again, this is not where we're spending our time today, but I bring this story up simply to illustrate the fact that our rest, or a lack thereof, our rest does not just impact us. It affects other people as well. Well, I mean, we see Jesus here is clearly tired. He needs some rest. They're traveling by boat, and he's tired, so he falls asleep, even though there is a nasty storm brewing. He needs some rest, and his habits of rest 
have very real consequences for other people. Now, again, this story isn't directly tied to the Sabbath, but I think one of the broad points at play in this story impacts this conversation in an important way. And that is simply this, the Sabbath rest doesn't occur in a vacuum. Sabbath rest doesn't occur in a vacuum. You know, last week we talked about the personal nature of Sabbath rest. The fact that it impacts us personally because of our very basic human need for rest, both mentally and physically. It impacts us personally in terms of our spiritual health as we begin to intentionally carve out time to put ourselves in a position where we can even begin to notice the presence of God that is all around us. It has very great impacts on our personal lives, but it also has ripple effects that impact others. And the difficult thing is that the ways in which our rest or our refusal to rest, the ways in which that impacts others aren't always clear cut. This is what I mean by that. At times, maybe somebody else's need is going to go unmet for a while because I am so committed to this pattern of slowing down and ceasing activity. And at times, maybe that's appropriate. At other times, we may need to break our Sabbath routine in order to serve. This is a tension that can be really tricky to figure out. I, I don't think there is a foolproof, incredibly clear way to determine when each of those paths is appropriate, but it is something that we have to wrestle with as we begin to wade into the waters of Sabbath rest. So I'd like us to look at another passage in the Gospel of Matthew that might help us explore some of these questions. So last week we looked at a story that occurs right at the end of Matthew chapter 11 where we see Jesus teaching and he says this. He says, come to me all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. I see that you have a yoke that is exhausting you. The, the yoke that you have taken on yourselves is crushing your souls. So come to me, take my yoke upon you because my burden is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is rest for our weary souls, whatever the source of our fatigue might be. And then right on the heels of that story, as we make our way to the beginning of chapter 12, we read this in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. I think this would have been a very normal activity for Jesus and the disciples to be walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. I actually think this might be one of the most appropriate activities we could engage in on the Sabbath, just to get outside without a care in the world and spend time in nature. However, we quickly discover that what seems to be a harmless stroll through the grain fields isn't quite as harmless as we might have expected, because on this walk, the disciples get hungry, which led them to begin plucking some heads of grain in a field they were walking through. So what's going on here? I mean, is this theft? Clearly, the disciples who have left everything behind, they don't own or manage this field, but, 
there was actually a provision in the law for this very activity. We find it in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23. There was essentially a social security system for the economically disadvantaged built into the law, which enabled those who were in need to gather grain from a field, even a field that did not belong to them. But they had this ability because the farmer, the landowner, was instructed to leave the edges of the field unharvested for these very purposes. So with that in mind, now to us, the disciples plucking heads of grain doesn't seem like a big deal because they were entitled to that activity until we consider the fact that there were specific restrictions in the law surrounding that activity. We see it in Exodus chapter 34 where folks are prohibited from reaping, from harvesting, from plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Because that was work. You couldn't do it. So the question becomes, well, Jesus, if you are a serious Jew, and if you are a rabbi for this ragamuffin group of disciples, why are you allowing this behavior to continue? As we continue reading, they voice that concern in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So in response to the challenge that Jesus receives from the Pharisees, he points their attention back to a story they were very familiar with from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now at that time, there was a custom where on every Sabbath day, 12 loaves of bread were, well, 12 loaves of bread that represented, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel were baked and then presented in the tabernacle as an offering. But those loaves of bread were reserved for the priests. Priests were the only one who were to eat of that bread. But in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we touched on this story earlier this year when we looked at portions of David's life. And in that story, David and his men are on the run, fearing for their lives because of Saul. And we find them entering the house of God. But because they were hungry, what do they do? They eat that bread that was reserved for the priests. Were they breaking the custom? Yeah, of course they were. But the question Jesus raises is, were they rebuked for that? And the answer is, no, they weren't. And he takes their attention again to the priests and says, priests obviously have duties to take care of on the Sabbath. Are they profaning this tradition? Are they profaning the temple by engaging in those tasks? And again, the answer is no. And what is the justification Jesus offers? 
He says, there's something greater than the temple that is here. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of this tradition that you are engaged in. If we look at Mark's version of this story, Jesus insists you have all of your priorities messed up. He says, the Sabbath was created for the benefit of humanity, not the other way around. Human beings weren't created to follow increasing regulations surrounding the Sabbath so that they could prove their holiness and their devotion to God. No, Sabbath rest is a gift that is given for the benefit of healthy, properly functioning individuals. And Jesus says, you're turning it into something else entirely, and it's not helpful. Well, we continue reading in this chapter. As Jesus begins to put some flesh on this concept that has just been established in verse 9. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. So from that clash with the Pharisees, Jesus then moves to the synagogue And yet again, another trap is set regarding this man that has a withered hand and the fact that this is the Sabbath. And the question is posed, well, can you heal this individual? That would be work, and of course it is the Sabbath day. Jesus says in verse 11, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus again responds to the critique cloaked in the form of a question If you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, what are you going to do? It would require work, of course, to lift that sheep out. But you're going to say, no, forget the tradition. There's an emergency here. The sheep's life is in danger. I need to help it out. It cannot wait until tomorrow. Again, based on the principle from this story in Mark, the Sabbath was made for the benefit of humanity. Humans weren't created in order to follow arbitrary rules. Jesus said it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because that's actually what the Sabbath is all about. That's what it has been about since the beginning. So I think one thing we take away from this story told to us in Matthew chapter 12 is that Jesus is willing to do work on the Sabbath in certain circumstances. Reaping grain, because the disciples are hungry, seems to be an occasion where work might be necessary, or healing an individual who is faced with a serious physical ailment. Jesus is willing to do work on the Sabbath in certain circumstances, and to go against clearly established norms for Sabbath observance. Why? 
because it's, again, it's, it's possible for us to get this completely backwards and convolute it to the point where we begin thinking the purpose of Sabbath observance is simply about following these arbitrary standards of holiness. And that's not what it's about. It's never been about that. The Sabbath, according to Jesus, is all about restoration. And so if the Sabbath is about restoration, if there are situations we are faced with on our day of rest where restoration is desperately needed, maybe the appropriate thing to do is restore. The question then that we need to ask, the question we need to be willing and have enough courage to answer honestly, though, is, well, is this urgent? Because as soon as we begin going down this path, we can make all sorts of excuses for any activity and say, well, this is an emergency. I, I really have to get to the store to purchase these things. It's an emergency. And typically speaking, most of the needs that we face are not emergencies. And so we have to be willing to ask, is this urgent? Because not everything is urgent. There are needs that we may have, there are needs that others may have that are legitimate needs that should be addressed, but they may not be urgent. You might not need to interrupt your day of rest. Maybe it can wait until tomorrow, but maybe it can't. This is the tension we have to try to figure out on a case-by-case basis because we've come to terms with the fact that our personal well-being is not the only thing at stake when we rest. Our Sabbath practices don't occur in a vacuum, but they affect, they have very real effects in the lives of other people. You know, Sabbath rest, traditionally speaking, has always been done with others. It's not something done in isolation. It is done with others, and it is done for others. And so one of the reasons we practice Sabbath is because we care about other people. Because we want to have margin or time in our lives to begin investing in the relationships that are important to us. And we can't do that if we are spending every waking moment engaged in our work. So we Sabbath because we want to have the emotional and physical reserves needed to serve other people. Miroslav Volf put it this way. He said, the stress of the pursuit of self-interest in modern societies is at odds with one of the most essential aspects of a Christian theology of work, which insists that one should not leave the well-being of other individuals in the community to the unintended consequences of self-interested activity, but should consciously and directly work for others. So with that in mind, maybe a very simple question we might ask, in figuring out some of our personal standards, in figuring out our personal practices that we are going to commit to in a day of Sabbath rest, maybe the question we need to begin asking is, well, is this activity giving life to me and others, or is it taking life? Is it sucking all of my reserves, all of my energy and my time? We don't 
I don't think necessarily have to cease all activity on our day of rest. In fact, I don't think that's realistic, and I don't think it's productive, to be quite honest. Sabbath is not just a 24-hour period of hibernation where we pull the shades down on our windows and let Netflix stream all day. That's not what Sabbath rest is about. And if we begin thinking of Sabbath in terms of just moving into a place of isolation and watching something on a screen all day, I think we really need to reevaluate how we view rest. That's not what rest is about. But we do, on our day of rest, stop activities that define the other six days of our week. And we do, on our rest, cease activity that is bound up in our own personal survival. And I think that idea from Miroslav Volf is directly related to this issue of Sabbath because by ceasing work, which we all understand that our work is our means of acquisitiveness. Our work is the means by which we sustain ourselves and our families. It's how we make ends meet in our checkbooks. And by ceasing that activity, by ceasing that source of our self-sustenance, we actively remind ourselves that that's not all there is to life. That my life is more than the things I possess. My life is more than the balance in my checking account. I'm a part of a larger community. I'm a part of a larger family. It's not just about me sustaining myself, but it's about me carving out room in my life through which I can begin to serve those in my community. This is the picture that we get of Sabbath practice that was practiced throughout Israel's history. Leviticus chapter 23, the entire chapter is comprised of the Lord speaking through Moses to the people of Israel about the various appointed feasts that they should observe throughout the year. So in that chapter, we read about the Sabbath and Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Booths, and just to name a few. And in each of those descriptions for those feasts, one of the instructions is on those days, you shouldn't do any ordinary work, work that is bound up in your own survival. And when we look at the instructions concerning the Sabbath, we are told this is a day of sacred assembly, a day of sacred Assembly, a day not that we move into isolation because it's all about me and me recharging, but it's me recharging for another purpose. The communal element of Sabbath rest cannot be overlooked. You know, I've, I've never personally been to Israel, but I've been told on several occasions of folks who have how on Friday afternoons in the city of Jerusalem, you sort of begin to feel this sense, a buzz in the air, excitement as people are rushing around and trying to hurriedly finish various tasks before the sun sets. And then almost on a dime, the bustle stops. The entire city shuts down, which I'm sure is very jarring for visitors, especially visitors from the West, who are not at all accustomed to this massive citywide practice. I think we are typically much more accustomed to the city that never sleeps, 
right? And we have changed our habits in a way that it makes it seem as though the city that never sleeps and where there are lights always on and activity always going on, it makes that seem normal. And we've more or less adjusted our lives to that, but adjusting our lives to that may not be a good thing. As A.J. Svoboda in his book, Subversive Sabbath, says, it is not a mark of health to be adjusted to the rhythms of a sick society, which I think is so true of life in the West. You know, many Jewish folks have noted that as Friday nears, anticipation is building. Because this practice is so ingrained in them and has been so life-giving for them, there's a sense of anticipation as Friday afternoon nears. Abraham Joshua Heschel put it this way. He said, Zion is in ruins. Jerusalem lies in the dust. All week there is only hope of redemption. But when the Sabbath is entering the world, man is touched by a moment of actual redemption. As if for a moment the spirit of the Messiah moved over the face of the earth. But in Jewish culture, the benefit of this day that everybody is anticipating all week, the benefit of this day is not just for me and mine. It is for everybody, the entire assembly. And to be fair, Sabbath probably works best and is much more accessible when an entire city shuts down because you can't go out and get some of those last-minute items you need. The shops are closed. But for us, obviously, that is not a realistic arrangement. Culture-wide or city-wide or nationwide ceasing is never going to be a reality. In fact, I think we're moving continually in the opposite direction. I noticed that just a couple of weeks ago. On a Friday, I made an order on Amazon Prime, and I mistakenly assumed, well, it's going to arrive on Monday because I can just disregard Sunday. They're not going to be delivering packages on Sunday. But sure enough, Sunday afternoon, a truck pulls up and delivers our package, which got me to thinking or reinforced this idea that Sabbath habits that I am engaged in don't occur in a vacuum. They impact me, but they're also having these ripple effects and impacting other people. So when I am caught in the cycle of acquiring seven days a week, I also force others to be involved in that activity as well. And I get the fact that it's much more complicated than that in today's society because everybody has a different day off and we're probably never going to return to a day that is more or less off-limits culture-wide. The point I'm trying to make is simply this. If Sabbath rest is not just about me and my needs, my self-sustenance, if it's also about others that I am in relationship with, I probably should take that into consideration when I begin setting up some of my personal standards of what Sabbath rest is going to look like in my life. Kevin, if you all want to come up. Of course, all of this requires a first step of ceasing. Stopping activity that is bound up in our self-sustenance, 
activity that defines the other six days of our week. You know, Dallas Willard has said, we should take as our aim to live our lives entirely without hurry. Only when we are living our lives without hurry will we be able to see the needs of others and begin to do what we can to address those needs. And there are seasons in life, I get that, where you may have to make certain concessions. Maybe you have seasons throughout your year vocationally where Sabbath rest is going to be quite difficult and it's going to look different than it does at other times of the year. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But understanding that, my challenge to you is this. Don't allow those exceptions that you make because you're in a different season. Don't allow those exceptions to become the rule. Don't allow those temporary concessions to cause you to disregard rest altogether. It's an easy path to go down. Resist it. Resist it. Not just for your benefit, not just for your emotional, mental, and spiritual health, but also for the health and the restoration of those around you. Would you stand this morning as we move to a time celebrating the gift of Christ's mercy? To each of us, we gather around the body and blood of Christ. And again, as it has been throughout this month, the invitation is quite simple. It is come and rest. Come and rest. I believe Jesus does provide the rest we need for our weary souls, whatever the source of our fatigue might be. Let's pray as we move to a time of communion. Lord Jesus, we pray today that as we have reflected on our scriptures that we would be reminded that Sabbath rest is not just about us. It is about the other as well. It's about the community. Remind us that it is not always our responsibility to fix or meet every need we see. Every need we see that, that would make rest, genuine rest, impossible for us. And yet we also want to find that balance where we understand that rest benefits us, but it is also to be enjoyed with others and for others as we make time to invest in our relationships. It is intended to give us the emotional, mental, and physical reserves to serve others. So Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, enable us to enter your rest for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of our friends. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table today?